time. All right, so Lord, as we open up tonight, we thank you, Lord, we're going to be going into the word of the Lord, the book of Revelation. And Lord, I just thank you for anointing and speaking through me everything that needs to be said under a mighty anointing. Lord, I thank you for the Holy Spirit even now moving upon every one of us. Everybody that's going to be hearing this live, everybody that's going to be hearing this as a recording, Lord, that this, that your Holy Spirit, I thank you. He's moving upon us to help us, to give you our best ear, our full attention, our focus, no distractions, to get our minds locked into what, what is God saying, get our hearts in tune with you, that we will be good, fertile soil for the Word of God. And I thank you, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, us all just kind of getting locked in and focused. And that you would speak through me everything that needs to be spoken tonight. It will be, uh, you know, living seeds of truth sown into good soil, watered by the Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit, fruit that remains. And that the winds of your Spirit, Lord, are blowing this out among the nations of the earth. It's going to get everywhere it needs to go, accomplish everything it needs to do. Lord, we submit it unto you, and as the Bible says, the birds of the air try to steal the seed. So, Lord, we submit this time unto you, this study and revelation. As a church, we agree together. We bind up everything of the enemy right now in the name of Jesus that would try to hinder, that would try to distract, oppress in any way this word from going out, getting where it's supposed to, accomplishing what it's supposed to. We bind you now in the name of Jesus. You will back off. And, Lord, I thank you for your angels clearing that out. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit carrying this where it needs to go. And we stand on this promise. The word of God will not return void. It will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. So Lord, we thank you for hearing and answering all the prayers and meeting every need. That throughout this series, Lord, it's going to be like a bright shining light dispelling the darkness and bringing truth and revelation. And Lord, it's going to be a, like a washing of the water of the word. It's going to be like a hammer that breaks through. And Lord, we thank you for it and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you guys are excited to start looking at the end times? Well, we're living in these days, so it's important that we understand them because, I mean, for the last probably 15 to 20 years, I don't really remember, back in the late 90s sometime, I really began to study end time prophecy. And over the last maybe seven to eight years, I went back and just really got deep with that. I love the Word of God so much. I'm, I'm somebody that's really a student of the Word, and I love the subject of end-time prophecy. It is something I'm very comfortable talking about, and I love to read it. I love to study it. But to understand the book of Revelation, tonight is just going to be kind of an introduction. We'll read chapter 1 together. But to really understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand the rest of the Bible. Because it brings everything together and brings a closure to all of it. And so you have to understand, you have to understand the Torah. You have to, there's a lot of uh, Old Testament and New Testament prophets. You need to understand the book of Daniel. So we'll, we will go through that. God willing, we will take the time. I plan on taking the time to go through it. I'm going to give a special thanks to some of these. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but just a special thanks to people that have studied end-time prophecy and have been a blessing to me, like uh, Dr. Cho. His book on apocalyptic prophecy, Dr. Cho's book, where he teaches Daniel and Revelation, was a foundational book for me. And you can get that anywhere books are sold. 
um, I really recommend that because it's extremely easy to understand and it really explains Daniel and Revelation. Perry Stone's done some great teaching, John Kilpatrick, Chuck Missler, Bill Salas, Derek Prince. Derek Prince is one of my favorite teachers on any subject, but he's done a phenomenal job on end time prophecy. And there are many others that I haven't mentioned, but just uh, over the years, I've studied it, studied their materials, studied several books, and I just love this subject. So I believe you guys will really enjoy this as we go through it together. Um, let's open things up by just reading Revelation, the first chapter, all right? And we'll go through it, and then I'm going to explain some things as an introduction, and then also I'm going to look at the menorah, all right? So this is an introduction to the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, we ready? The revelation of Jesus Christ. So I want you to notice, I'm going to stop several times. I want you to notice it's revelation singular. It's not revelations with an S. It's revelation of who? Jesus. You see, what you'll see as we go through this is that what was lost in the garden through Adam is now going to be fulfilled in Christ, the last Adam. And so this is the completion, the fulfillment when Adam fell, God spoke to him and said, I will provide through the seed of the woman, interesting, that there will come a, a male child. He, God was prophesying, I'm paraphrasing this. And though the serpent would strike his heel, he would crush his head. So there was this prophecy, even at that time in the garden, that a Messiah would come. So this book of Revelation is the revelation of the Messiah, the last Adam who would finish and fulfill everything. Amen? Isn't that awesome? So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. So who did God give this to? Jesus. To show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. He sent and communicated it by his angel, so just as Moses received divine revelation on Sinai through angels, also John on the Isle of Patmos received revelation through angels to his bondservant John. Now we know John who wrote the book of Revelation was one of the disciples, one of the 12, okay? Who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now this book of the Bible is the only book where it says this, you ready? Blessed is he who reads and he who hears the words of the prophecy. Did you know that there is a special blessing that comes upon your life, those who read and who hear the book of Revelation? Isn't that awesome? No other book of the Bible says that. But there is a blessing on him. And heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. The message to the seven churches. Now, this is very interesting. As we go through this, I'm laying groundwork. Why did God pick these seven churches in Asia? Why didn't God pick to speak messages? Oh, first of all, let me back up. Did you know that, you know, we talk about the epistles. Paul wrote various epistles to the church in Philippi, Romans, Galatians, etc., but did you know 
that there are seven more epistles that are in the book of Revelation that are very small, but they are written directly from the Lord Jesus Christ to those seven churches. Have you ever thought about that? They are little mini epistles. And isn't it, isn't it interesting that the Lord picked these seven churches of which you and I probably would have never even heard of them had the Lord most of them, and we would have Ephesians, but we wouldn't have heard of a lot of these had the Lord not picked them and mentioned them in Revelation. Why didn't the Lord pick right to these seven churches, Galatians, Colossians, Philippians, etc.? But he picked seven churches, of which really Ephesus, I think, is the only one that we would know off the top of our heads. There is a reason why these specific seven churches were chosen. And I'll deal with that as we go. It's prophetic. The church in Ephesus was the early church, and it's like a prophetic timeline if you study it. And Laodicean speaks of the last day church. So there is a reason why the Lord picked these specific seven churches to mention. Although, um, in, in the natural looking at it, you would wonder, why did he pick those? But anyway, the message to the seven churches, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. There are not seven Holy Spirits, but I'll explain that later. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. You can read that as a kingdom of priests. Um, the King James says kings and priests. But to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, which speaks of the Jews. So there must be a nation of Israel when Jesus comes. Don't worry too much about Israel because the Bible prophesies there will be an Israel. Woe to those that tried to make Israel cease to exist because God would have to fall off his throne for that to happen. And God's not going to fall off his throne, amen? God's going to make sure that there is an Israel. So even those who pierced him will look upon him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen? Verse 8, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now what that is, is the Greek alphabet. So it would be in the English, he's saying, I am letter A, and I am letter Z. Okay, I am the beginning, I am the end. He says, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And so verse 9, here John is, he's been imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos, where he probably was having to do hard labor, like, you know, working in mines and caves and carrying rocks and things like that. It was a prison sentence. But he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the isle called Patmos because, why was he there? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In verse 10, 
I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So when he says, I was in the Spirit, I want you to think about some things about that because it's actually a powerful statement. He didn't say, I was in the flesh. He didn't even say, I was in the soul. <laughs> he was in the Spirit. There's something about when we get in prayer, and you know, a lot of people here, I think, understand this, but you've got to press into God to get past your own flesh. And then you've also even got to get deeper than just it being your human intellect and your human emotions because that's your soul area, and that's only going to go so far. But when you kind of get deeper than that and you're now in the Spirit where the Holy Spirit is speaking to your spirit and you're in the Spirit, does this make sense? He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's a place of revelation. And I believe here personally for me as an individual the Lord's Day would be a common phrase referring to the Sabbath. So I believe this was probably the Sabbath. Some people say that John was transported like to the Day of Judgment. And he saw the Lord's Day. You see what I'm saying? The Day of Judgment, Judgment Day. Maybe that's what that means. But to me personally, I think that he was in prayer. And I think that he was caught up kind of in the spirit. It was the Sabbath day. And in that place, God spoke to him, and he said this, I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, which would have been a shofar, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. And here they are, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. Now let's stop there for a moment. I really want you to take notice that he was walking among the lampstands. This is one of those times that we need to really take note of a couple things. <clears throat> you're not really going to understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the Torah. We went back in the September or so of 2018, to September 2019, I did a Bible study with the church and we went through the first five books of the Bible. This is now going to come in handy for those that follow through that. Because you have to understand the first five books, you have to understand the tabernacle of Moses, and you have to understand the lampstand that was in the tabernacle, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about before we're done tonight. But the lampstand speaks of the various churches. So here he said, write to the seven churches of Asia. And then the Lord was walking among these seven lampstands, which represent the seven churches, you see. <clears throat> It said, Jesus was clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. Girded across his chest was a golden sash. His head and hair were like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when they had been made to glow in a furnace. So they were like hot. They were glowing. He said, um, his feet were like burnished bronze. And then it said, his voice was like the sound of many waters 
In his right hand, so let's take time with this. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, which I believe speak of the pastors of those churches. But notice, look at this, in his hand, in his right hand, he's walking among the lampstands, and in his right hand, he's got the seven stars, okay? And out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. Now, what is the two-edged sword? It's going to be the Word of God, isn't it? The Bible. And his face was shining like the sun. And when did we see something like that in the Word of God? We saw that in the days of Moses when he went up and spent time with the Lord and he came down, his face was shining, okay? But Jesus' face was shining like the sun in its strength. So there was a, a real bright shining of his face. And John said in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Now this also happened to Daniel when Gabriel appeared to him. Daniel just collapsed under the glory. He couldn't get up. Gabriel actually had to put his hand on him, and, and it strengthened him. But Daniel was under the weight of that visitation, that glory, and he just collapsed. And I believe, obviously, that's what happened here. When John saw Jesus, the, the presence, the, the glory emanating off him, just he collapsed like a dead man, okay? And Jesus placed his right hand on John, saying to him, Do not be afraid. I am the first. I am the last. And the living one, I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, things which are and things which will take place after these things. Now, this is one translation, but here's what is important to remember. He was saying here to John, you're going to be writing about things that were in the past things that are in your day present tense and things which are to come let me say that again because this is extremely important he said you're going to be writing about things which were which are in his day present tense then and what is to come okay and he said in verse 20 as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand in the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels to the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so I'm going to give a little details, and then I want to get into something really interesting tonight. I'm going to get into the lampstand and talk some about that, the menorah. All right, so here's some details, because we're going to kind of take a really serious look at the book of Revelation. There's a lot that I'm, I'm going to have to take time with this because there's a lot that I couldn't fit into tonight, okay? Um, but I'll, come, I'll cover some more of this foundational stuff next week. Um, anyway, there's a lot of pictures and types to Revelation. It's interesting because, like I said, it kind of sums up everything. I, I mean, you look at it, and it's so interesting because you see how, for example... In the days of the Exodus, Pharaoh was like a picture and type of Satan, but also like a picture and type of the Antichrist. You remember how the plagues were coming down on the world and God's people were leaving? In the same way you see in Revelation, the plagues are going to be coming down and God's people are on the way out, you see. Isn't it interesting also, there's so much to this. I, I don't want to rabbit trail because I can cover it next week, but 
even with the book of Joshua, how that's kind of a picture and type of what's going on here. See, Jesus is coming back to take over the earth and rule from Jerusalem on the throne of his father David for a thousand years. So he's coming into the earth to dispossess Satan and his kingdom. Just like Joshua entered Canaan, and there were ten major principalities there that had to come down. Jericho was the first, and it was like the first fruits and like the tithe. That's why they didn't take anything. But there was ten principalities that had to collapse. And in the same way, when Jesus is coming under the Antichrist, and there was a, a guy, Adonai Zedek or something, that was kind of a principal figure, kind of a pic picture and type of the Antichrist. But when Jesus comes, the Antichrist is going to have ten principalities. See, he, and also you see a reference of, in Joshua, the hailstones that came down on the earth. Isn't it interesting? And yet Rahab, being like a, a harlot, but kind of made righteous, but you remember that, that red cord that hung out her window, which represents the blood that her and her household, like a remnant, were saved out. Isn't that interesting? The tabernacle in many ways is referenced through here a lot. We'll cover that. But the book of Revelation in Greek, and I, I'm not a Greek guy, but apocalypsis or whatever, but that's where we get the word apocalypse from. And apocalypse, and I looked that up in the Greek, and this particular word here in Greek means revealed, disclosed, or manifested. And so the word we have here is this is the apocalyptic prophecy. Something that is being revealed to us. Something that was hidden. A mystery that is being made known unto us. And as I said earlier, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ given to Jesus by the Father. It was given to him and revealed unto us. Isn't it amazing that our Bible, don't you think about this, consists of 66 books penned by over 40 authors over several thousands of years, yet it is in perfect harmony and continuity from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible interprets the Bible. Some things about John. John was probably of some kind of a priestly or Levitical bloodline, and we get that because he had access to Nicodemus, and we know that nobody else could get in there to the trial of Jesus except John. And also because of his ability to get them the, the area near the temple, the upper room, he probably had some kind of priestly or Levitical blood in his DNA. The bloodlines, it's interesting too that the bloodlines of the tribe of Judah, which Jesus was born from, and the bloodlines associated with Aaron and the Levites started to come together a little bit there toward the end of um, the Old Testament and into the New Testament because don't you find it interesting that Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins? And John the Baptist was a direct descendant of Aaron and Jesus was a descendant of the tribe of Judah of King David. John was born in Bethsaida to Zebedee and Salome, and he was a Galilean fisherman by trade. It was his family business. He was an early disciple of John the Baptist who pointed him to Christ. 
John was the one that was in the inner circle with Peter and James at the Mount of Transfiguration, raising of Jairus' daughter, the Olivet Discourse, and the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus appointed him to look after his mother Mary while he was on the cross. So John, you know, about him and his brother, Jesus called them the sons of thunder. And after being in prison on Patmos for a while, John, when he returned from that sentence, he retired, if there really is a retirement for an apostle, okay, but he, um, he settled in in Ephesus overseeing that work, which is really interesting to me because I've studied this. So the apostle Paul traveled to all these Gentile places preaching the gospel and planted churches everywhere. But Paul had probably the greatest revival in Ephesus and it wasn't his first time in Ephesus it was his second time to Ephesus that the Holy Spirit fell but Paul wrote about it when he sent a letter to Corinthians he said there is an effectual door that's open unto me and many oppose me anytime you have a great move of God don't be surprised at great opposition Paul said that. He said, I have an effectual door that's open to me. He's speaking of a two-year major revival. But he said, there's many that oppose me. Great opposition. But when Paul was in Ephesus, there was such a move of God. It's recorded in Acts chapter 19 that the whole province there heard the word of God. The apostle Paul was used mightily, even extraordinary miracles beyond just him laying hands, words of knowledge and healing that even handkerchiefs and aprons that were brought to him and were sent out to distant places because a lot of times people were too sick to come or whatever, that there were tremendous healings and miracles and deliverances that took place just through those garments. There was so much widespread repentance of sin, people getting saved out of various um, dark arts that they were bringing all their witchcraft to cult paraphernalia and burned it in a bonfire referenced in the Bible as being exceedingly expensive and how much all that material cost. But yet people were willing to burn it because they had been touched by God so powerfully. It was a great revival birth. That church, rather, was birth and the fires of revival. The apostle Paul sends a letter to them. We have it in our Bible. And in that, Paul teaches them in Ephesus about principalities and powers. Remember that? He said, you're not wrestling against flesh and blood, guys. We, I'm going to paraphrase some things. Paul's writing to a church planted in the greatest revival that we know of that took place in Paul's ministry. And he's saying, guys, I'm just warning you that you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. This great revival has great opposition, but what you're coming up against is the prevailing principality and powers over that region. And he taught us about principalities and powers, wickedness in high places, ruling spirits he taught us about the armor of god he said to make sure that your home is in order that husbands are leading wives are submitting that children are obeying their parents because he didn't want there to be an inroad for the devil to attack them and so it's interesting to me that after paul had been martyred under nero that when john comes from the isle of patmos 
he goes to this work in Ephesus, and that's where he settles in and stays the remainder of his days. And just like Jesus prophesied about John, he died of old age. Which was predicted, by the way, by Jesus. Patmos, where John was for years, is a tiny little island about 24 miles off the coast of Turkey. And John was exiled there by Domitian from A.D. 81 to 96, who was the brother of Titus who destroyed. You remember this? You guys remember Vespasian and then Titus? And Titus was the one that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. So Domitian was his brother. And there was 10 emperors, which I'll get into later on, from Nero to Diocletian, that there was severe persecution against the church. And Domitian was one of those. Now, a couple quick things. These are kind of Bible school things that we need to talk about just real quick. There are various views about end times. The first one is called the preterist view. And the preterists believe that the book of Revelation was written for the time of the early church and it was fulfilled then and it has absolutely no relevance today prophetically. I do not believe that. But I do believe that there are things that are referenced back then. There's also a historical view where the book of Revelation is seen strictly as a historical document that has historical value, but that's basically the end of that. And I do believe that there are some historical references, but I don't hold to that view either. Then there's this view, like it's called the idealist view, and everything is allegorical. Now, there are a lot of allegories. For example, Jesus is seen as a lamb, but how many knows Jesus is not actually a sheep? He's a person, okay? And when you read about this beast with, you know, ten heads and seven horns, there's not going to be a multi-headed dragon floating around in these last days in the sky everybody's looking at, okay? It's an allegory of Satan's end-time Babylonian system, which we'll get to. So there are allegories there. But the people that view everything as being just an allegory, they're not understanding that there are literal things to be seen also. And a lot of these people that hold this view, idealist, also believe in um, replacement theology. They, do, they don't believe that Israel has any relevance. So I don't hold to that view. And then there are also those that have a literal view or a future I'm sorry a futuristic view and they believe that the book of revelation has future prophetic revelation which I believe that it does I believe there's a little bit of truth in some of these the preterists there were some things that were during John's day there are some historical which we'll see as we go there are some historical important things to cover and there are some allegories, but at the end of the day, there also is a future prophetic revelation about what is to come. Amen? 
All right, then eschatology is just a, a $50 word for a study of the end times, okay? And so there's, there's a couple things here. There's amillennial, which these people believe, again, everything's an allegory. Then there's premillennial, which everything is literal. I believe in the middle. Some things are allegorical and some things are literal. If you're taking notes, let me give you something that's not in the notes here, but you write this down. It's P-A-R-D-E-S, pardes, P-A-R-D-E-S. This is an acronym for the way the Hebrew culture studies the Bible. And in my opinion, it's the best way to study the Word of God, okay? Pardes, P-A-R-D-E-S. You can look it up, but I'm going to give it to you. So the first acronym here is the P, the letter P, which in Hebrew stands for Peshat. And this is just a literal view. How many knows that sometimes there's just simply a literal view? So I'm going to use the story about the rock. You remember when Israel was in the wilderness and Moses struck the rock and water came out? All right. I'm going to use that story to explain parties because it'll make sense if you just use one story and kind of build. So Peshat is a literal view. So the very first thing you want to study when you study the Bible is you want to get the literal translation. What does it actually say? How many knows that there was a literal rock? It wasn't like some phantom thing. <laughs> okay, There was a rock, and so there was this literal rock there that spit out water. So you first off, the Peshat is, is that you, you understand that the very first layer of understanding of God's word when you study that is that there actually was a literal rock in a literal wilderness it's not some allegory you see so the next layer if you will is the R remes and that speaks of like a hint of more and as you study that story I'm just picking one story you could do this with a lot of things in the word of God but there's a remez, R-E-M-E-Z, means like there's a hint of more. So when you look at the story of the rock, and it's spewing out this water, a hint of more would be, you know, a couple things. First off, God must be really powerful if he's able to make this dry, crusty rock in the desert spit out enough water to water a nation. He must be a mighty, awesome God. Secondly, he must actually care about those people because he's giving the thirsty something to drink. So he must be an awesome God, but he also must be caring. So see, there's a hint of more in this, isn't there? So you go from Peshat, now you go to Remez, where you're starting to understand a little bit more about the story. Then you go to Drosh, the D. And this is where you really begin to, the drosh is kind of like a sermon, really. You begin to study it out. You study the story of the rock. You study, you pull from different places in the Bible, and you're really wanting to do an in-depth study and really understand what does this story really mean? 
And that usually, to me, when I think of drosh, I think of sermons. Because that's what happens when you make sermons. You, you study out different places. You bring together like a teaching. You present the teaching. That's drosh. And then finally, the, the fourth le level, if you will, is the S, sod, S-O-D. And this is supernatural revelation. And let me give you an example of this story. The apostle Paul said this. Hear what I'm saying. He said, and that rock that followed Israel around in the wilderness was Christ. He got that by divine revelation. Just like the book of Revelation. It came to John through divine revelation. It's sowed. But see, to truly understand revelation, you have to have the peshat. You've got to have that literal understanding. There is a literal understanding of the entire word of God. There are places, remes, where there's a hint of more that you can learn and then there's dross you've got to study out some things don't you you really got to study it out and then sowed there's revelation that comes does this make sense but if you try to get sowed you try to get revelation but you have not first got the foundation right it can lead into deception that's why i believe this study the part a's I believe that is a very important way of studying the Bible because first and foremost, you need to understand it in a literal context. And I'll give you an example why that's a big deal. That I could use a lot of examples, but if you're going to look at everything as an allegory, you're not going to take it literal. What people have done, Augustine, and, and it comes from Roman Catholicism, is replacement theology. They believe the church has replaced Israel. So every time you have an end-time prophecy about Israel, they try to make it an allegory about the church. You see? You can't do that. First off, Peshat, you have to get the literal translation that it literally is speaking of a nation of people. It is a literal messianic prophecy that is to come in the last days. It's not an allegory. It's literal. So you have to get that foundation first. Then you can start, oh, there's a hint of more. And then you can study out and get drosh. And then you can get revelation. But it needs to be in that order. So in the study of the end times eschatology, you have this amillennial, which everything's an allegory. Then you have swing the pendulum way over here, and you have the premillennium, pre where everything is just literal. Well, in my view... There's middle ground where some things are an allegory, some things are literal. If you study the whole Bible, it's all going to make sense and come together. And then you don't just end it there. <laughs> you, got the, you got the various views. Remember we said the preterist, the histor historical only, all that. You got the amillennial, the premillennial. Now you've got the rapture debate. Is it before, during, or after the tribulation? You see? It's, so anyway, again, you've got to study the entire word of God and bring it all together, and it all kind of consummates here in the book of Revelation. There's also heptatic, which is another $50 word for sevenfold, okay? It seems like there's so many things that are sevenfold, 
in the book of Revelation. Now, seven, just like God made, you know, created, rather, did creation in six days, on the seventh day rested. There's something about seven that implies perfection. It also implies like a completed work. And so when you look at seven, this is not exhaustive by any means, okay? I'm just going to give you some. You ready? In the book of Revelation, you see seven churches, seals, trumpets, bowls, lampstands, spirits, stars, lamps, promises to the overcomer, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven thunders, seven heads, crowns, plagues, mountains, and kings. And that's not the end of it. Only God could do that. Isn't it amazing? He, he just intertwines things in such a way. Here's the last couple things before I get into the manure, okay? So also it's important to understand the word salvation. Because I think unfortunately the, the church world by and large here in America doesn't really have a good grasp of this. So you, you can say somebody was saved, but that has a lot of connotation because, you know, somebody could have fled, a fireman could have ran into a building and brought him out. They were saved from the fire. So we use that word, and in our minds it's a certain way, but in the Greek the word saved is the word sozo, S-O-Z-O. And it means this. Look it up. It means save, heal, deliver, protect, preserve, prosper, make to do well, make whole. It's basically everything that was paid for at the cross. Now, interesting that this isn't in your notes or anything, but the, the Hebrew equivalent to that is the word yasha. And from that root is where you get the name Yeshua. And so Jesus' name comes from the word in Hebrew, save. And you know what that word means? The same exact thing. Save, heal, deliver, protect, preserve, prosper, make to do, or make whole. So whenever we use the word saved, let's kind of explain some things because we're studying the end times. And so this is relevant. There is something to this word in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, where we are saved, meaning that we're born again, where we've entered into a blood covenant with God, our sins have been pardoned, they're forgiven, and we are justified. You are made righteous. You have accepted him, you've accepted his sacrifice, you see that you're a sinner that you need a savior and you've put your faith in him and the result of that is the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you and you're born again your sins are forgiven so that is the initial salvation but in the Bible there is this process from the time that happens to the time you die and that process is called, in Romans 6, being saved. It's a process. This is where the word here that would be emphasized is sanctification. 
This is why Paul said to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's this process now that we're in where the Lord begins to deal with our sin. He begins to teach us. We've got to learn to forgive. We've got to renew our minds. We've got to have the strongholds broken in our lives. And the Lord begins a process of sanctifying us and perfecting us. And it's an ongoing process the rest of your life. And during this process of being saved, you see, this is my view of it. Because this is going to come up as you study Revelation. Jesus said in the book of Revelation, everybody say Jesus said. This isn't what Pastor Scott came up with. Okay, Jesus said. He said that people's names can be blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. It can be. Jesus said that. That ends the debate. Jesus said that. And the Bible alludes to the fact in the last days, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says that there would be a great falling away. And some translations translate that a great rebellion but the actual Greek word there is apostasia. And apostate is somebody that walked with the Lord and then they turn their back on the Lord. They renounce him and they've gone their own way. That's an apostate. And so the Bible predicts in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that there would be a great apostasia in the last days. Jesus said there would be great deception. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, he said that there would be, I believe that's the reference, but he said that there would be seducing spirits that, are, that can translate deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And he said because of those things that some would abandon the faith. So unfortunately... Somebody may have accepted the Lord at one time, but during that process of being saved, some will depart from the faith and turn their back on the Lord. It's their free will to do so. It's my view of it. I do not believe that God is going to put a gun to their head, so to speak, and make them stay. If they want to turn their back on him, they have the free will to turn their back on him. And there's going to be some that do that. So this process of being saved, being perfected, being sanctified that we go through throughout our life. And then there is the phrase, shall be saved, future tense. And that is glorification. So you're justified, you're made righteous, and then you go through this process of being saved. And then in the end is glorification. What this means is this, that now the mortality puts on immortality. When the rapture takes place, listen to what I'm saying, the dead in Christ will rise first and those that are alive and remain will be changed. You know what that is? We're given our glorified bodies. Your physical body right now has a sin nature in it. It is in a process of aging and will eventually die. But there is a promise of resurrection. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection, but there is a promise that we will be resurrected to new life. We will be given glorified bodies, and we will be with him forever. Isn't that awesome? 
And so what the Bible's saying there is, he that endures to the end shall be saved, Matthew 24, 13. So there's a process that we're all in that is going to be finished whenever we're given our glorified bodies, we're raised from the dead, and we're going to be able to be with the Lord. All right, the three women in Revelation, there's three distinct women that are mentioned. The first is Israel, the wife of Yahweh, the wife of the Father. God the Father married himself to the nation of Israel at Sinai. And even though the nation of Israel has been unbelievably unfaithful to God through the years, even over the last 2,000 years, Israel has by and large rejected the Messiah, and God had to judge Israel. During the, the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, those 30 years, you know, he was on the earth. And then there was 40 more years. 40 is the time of testing, isn't it? God gave Israel 40 more years. He poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. He had the early church in Jerusalem. He sent, just like Jesus said, he sent them prophets and teachers that were throughout the land. Israel stubbornly rejected the Messiah, rejected the gospel, and eventually in 70 A.D., God allowed judgment to come after 40 years of testing and scattered. Israel's been unfaithful in every sense of the word, but God is still faithful. And God said when, he, when Jesus comes, there will be an Israel. There has to be a Jerusalem because Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David. There has to be a Jerusalem. Don't worry about Jerusalem. The Bible says in Zechariah that anybody that tries to touch Jerusalem would find themselves reeling backward. You know why that is? Because God has put Michael to watch over Israel, and he's going to knock them backward is what's going to happen. But God's not going to allow Jerusalem to be, you know, continue like being a place that is contentious like that. It's, it will be under warfare. It'll be difficult. It'll be perilous times, but it's not going to be a disputed territory. It belongs to Israel, and it will remain that way, okay? Also, the Temple Mount. You've got Israel, you've got Jerusalem, and you've got the Temple Mount. There has to be a temple for the Antichrist to sit in for the abomination that causes desolation. So these things are going to happen. Even though Israel's been unfaithful, God's going to be faithful to Israel. He's going to preserve a third like a remnant. And even though Jerusalem, I mean, it's going to be a battleground, so to speak. It will not be disputed territory. It will be the capital of Israel when Messiah comes. Does that make sense? All right. Also, you see the virgin bride of Christ. Jesus has paid for us. The church, the true church, not everybody that calls themselves a Christian, not everybody that goes to church, so to speak, but those that are truly born of God, washed in the blood, the true church is the bride of Christ. And we cannot look down at Israel because look at the last 2,000 years. Has the church been faithful to Christ? I don't think so. But yet Christ has been faithful to his bride. And we are going to be eventually caught up to meet him in the air for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that is the church. And then finally you see the harlot or 
the whore of Babylon or the woman who rides the beast, which is a reference to the Jezebel spirit. And that's going to be very pervasive in these last days. That is a force to be reckoned with. Satan wants little Jezebels in every church, and he wants every church to be hindered and resisted by the Jezebel spirit. It is a, it is a point that you're going to have to go through and overcome, and either people are going to change or God will get rid of them, but there's going to have to be a clearing out of that stuff. It is a strong... Derek Prince said this. He said, the greatest hindrance to your destiny in God is witchcraft. And the devil will try to put a bunch of Jezebels around your life that will stop and hinder what God wants you to do. All right, so let me finish this section. I'm going to get to the menorah. The Bible has to be understood, the whole Bible, to really understand Revelation. So as we go through this, we're going to go to all over the Word of God. We're going to go to the Torah. We're going to go to the prophets. And we're going to cover a lot of territory. But I want to give you, as I close this out, I want to spend just a few moments explaining something about the menorah. Because Jesus was seen here walking among the lampstand. All right. This is not in your notes, but just look this way. Give me your best ear. All right. So there's a law in the Bible there seems to be, rather, I should say it this way. Scholars agree there's kind of this principle of first reference that whenever something is mentioned first in the Bible, that it seems to set a precedent for the rest of the Word of God. And so the very first place the menorah is mentioned is in the tabernacle. So you have to go back to that and look at that because that sets the precedent for it throughout the Word of God. Does that make sense? The law of first reference. I'm going to give you a few things about the menorah. Those that have followed our ministry for a while probably have heard some of this anyway. But there's a lot to this. First off, the menorah was seen in the Bible, in, in the tabernacle, as being like a little tree, if you will. See, the very first tree to blossom in Israel in springtime is the almond tree and this in many ways is like an almond tree it's got this doesn't this particular one doesn't but when Moses was given the revelation there was to be a knob and a bud and a bowl like a, a bud here and one here and here so a knob bud bowl knob bud bowl knob bud bowl it's important and also it's kind of seen like an olive tree because you have the oil in it you see but at the end of the day, the way I view this anyway, is the menorah is seen as God's family tree. You guys ever do a study or you look at your family ancestry and what they call it, your family tree? Now, a lot of times if you, you do that, they'll actually have like a tree on there, you know, the branches. You're in one of those branches somewhere, and then there's offshoots, and, you know, it's your family tree. This is God's family tree. And the interesting thing about this, and let me take a few minutes with it, there's a, there's a lot of interesting things about the menorah. But the Apostle Paul referenced that the nation of Israel, he said that in Romans 11, and let me encourage you for this week, 
maybe read Romans 9, 10, and 11. That could be maybe your Bible study this week, 9, 10, and 11. But the Apostle Paul, when he was talking about Romans 9, then 10, then 11, he was leading up to the nation of Israel like an olive tree, and he said this. He said that the unbelieving Jews were broken off, and they were cast away. But he said that the believing Gentiles were brought in like a wild olive shoot, and they were engrafted into this tree. So that all of them share in that those that are in the tree share in that nourishing sap of those of that root system. Isn't that something? So there is this family tree. So let me explain it. First off, when God needed to find a man that he could begin through him to be a progenitor to the nation to create a nation, he found Abraham. And so Abraham was known as a friend of God. And Abraham, God cut covenant with him. And at some point, I'll probably talk more about covenant again. I, I can't tonight. But covenant was a very big deal in the Middle East. It was not like anything you know in America. You know, people say things. They give their word. They break their word. America, by and large, does not understand covenant at all. But covenant, when you enter covenant with somebody, it was a lifelong thing. It basically meant your enemies become my enemies. If your family's in trouble, my family will do whatever we have to do to take care of you. If your family is attacked by marauders coming in, our whole family is going to take up arms and we're going to go fight to the death for you. Your enemies are our enemies. We're in a blood covenant. There's more to it, but I don't have time tonight. So God had Abraham. He was from that part of the wor world, the Ur, the Chaldees, the Middle East. He understood covenant. And so when God told Abraham to cut those animals in half, and he separated them, there was a, birds on each side, there was animals cut in half. Abraham walked in that bloody soil, and God made a blood covenant with Abraham. When God cut covenant with him, that's where it all began. And we, to this day, to this day, share in that covenant with Father Abraham. You understand that? So that covenant that God cut with Abraham is the root system of this tree. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the root system. The covenant that God cut there. And so out of that root system, there was a prophecy. Because Jacob, the 12 tribes, the nation. Out of that root system, there was a prophecy that one day there would be a shoot that would come out of Jesse. Remember that? That was speaking one day of Jesus coming out of the tribe of Judah from the descendants of David. And out of that root system came the Messiah one day in the fullness of time. The Messiah came up out of that root system, out of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Judah, and he's this centerpiece. And Jesus said about himself in John, he said, I am the vine, you're the branches. He that abides in me will bear much fruit. So Jesus came up out of that root system. He was a full-blood Jew of the tribe of Judah, a son of David. And he fulfilled that prophecy. The Messiah has come. And if you look at this like a timeline, 
before Jesus came. So look at the left, my left, your right. Before Jesus came, there was like two Jews to every one Gentile that was in right standing with God. Does that make sense? There was two Jews to every one Gentile. But on the other side of the cross, when Jesus came, the Messiah came, he was cut off. On the other side, there's two Gentiles to every one Jew. Isn't that interesting? But yet, those that died before Christ, they died in faith looking at one day at the one who would redeem them. They still died in faith. They believed. And every time they brought those animals to the tabernacle, the temple later, they believed in the one who would come and fulfill it. And now, on the other side of the cross, we die in faith one day, believing, looking backward at the cross. See, they were, they were looking to it in the future. Now, we're looking back at it for salvation. You see So I want you to understand this is God's family tree. And this family tree, what did God give us as, what's the greatest gift? You know, all of us have things that have passed down the family. You know, there may be special books, there may be special jewelry, there's things. There's things that have kind of passed down. Things that maybe to your family was very special. What would God give his family that would be the greatest gift, something that we would cherish, something that would mean so much to us? Part of the covenant. Remember that we are in a family tree, but we're part of a blood covenant family, you see. What would God give us? Well, he gave us two great gifts, and it's represented in the menorah. Number one, God gave us his Bible. This began at Sinai when God the Father married himself to the nation of Israel. He gave through Moses the Torah, and that was the beginning. The first five books were given. They were built upon. But God has given us a 66-book Bible. And if you look at the menorah, this is really interesting. There's a knob and a bud and a bowl, knob, bud and a bowl, knob, bud and a bowl. So there's nine and then you count, let's go this way. If you do it this way, there's 9, 18. How many books are in the New Testament? I'm drawing a blank. 29, is that right? But anyway, there is the books of the New Testament are represented. And then if you count the 12 plus these, it's the exact number of the books of the Old Testament. So it's interesting that there, if you count the knob, bud, and the bowls, the knob, bud, and the bowls, and there was four times three in the middle, you get 66 books of the Bible. So God prophesied when Moses, he gave him the, the tabernacle, he gave him the lampstand. God was prophesying through the menorah that there would be a 66 book of the Bible that we would eventually hold. So one of the greatest gifts that God has given his family is the Bible, the word of God, which is seen prophetically in the menorah. Also, what is seen in this? God gave this on Sinai. He began to give his word. And then 1,500 years later at Pentecost, he gave us his spirit. 
And so when you look at the menorah, you see that there's a sevenfold revelation. Remember me telling you earlier, there's not seven different Holy Spirits. There's one, but there's a sevenfold revelation of the Holy Spirit. All right, the Holy Spirit is revealed in Scripture. Number one, the center branch. He is the Spirit of the Lord. But he's also the Spirit of wisdom, revelation, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So there's a sevenfold revelation of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is also prophesied, if you will, in the menorah. So God wanted to give his family the two greatest gifts he could possibly give us, and that is his word and his spirit. Isn't that awesome? But there's more to it than that because God wanted to give us that, but also these both came on the day of Pentecost. In the Old Testament time, God appeared on Sinai. It was right there at the Feast of Shavuot. It's what's celebrated every year to this day among Israel. That was celebration of God giving his word. But then 1,500 years later, on the same time, the day of Pentecost, God gave his spirit. So when you enter into the tabernacle, I'm going with just a couple more things. When you enter into the tabernacle of Moses and you look to the right, what do you see? You see the table of showbread, and then you look to the left, you see the menorah. Y'all following me? You guys familiar with tabernacle enough to? And in front of you is the altar of incense, okay? If you were to take a man, and because Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle in every way. If you were to take a man and lay them down where their head, the back of their head laid on the Holy of Holies, their left arm would fall on the table of showbread, the altar of incense would be here in the heart. And then the right hand would fall on the menorah. You follow me? Does this make sense? Isn't it interesting in the book of Revelation, which we're going to get into, that God said this. He said, if you do not keep your first, return back to your first love, he said, I will remove your lampstand. You remember reading that? So if you look this up, it's this very interesting study. If you look up the lampstand, or I'm sorry, you look that up there, the first, um, your first love, it translates your supreme love feast. And that actually means like the communion table. And then, this is interesting to me, he said if you don't keep the communion table, he said I will re remove your menorah. And so I got to thinking about that because Jesus walked among the lampstands. So when the Lord sees River of Life tonight, he sees us as a lampstand. There's all the true churches that are out there. Not every place where people gather is necessarily a church from God's perspective. It may just be a social club or an entertainment thing. But places... that God looks at as being a true church, a place that really represents him, that is really under his kingdom authority, his rulership. He views it as a true church. You have to understand, these are places where the word of God is being preached unadulterated. It's, it's not being watered down, it's being preached. And also it's a place 
where the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is in operation. And there's something special about the communion table because it gives us time to really examine ourselves. And as we take communion, what does the Bible say about the communion table? There's so much revelation there. But David said, it's a table in the presence of my enemies where my head is anointed with oil. There's something about the communion table that what represents his body and blood goes into our body and blood. We forgive others. We confess and repent. We make sure we're right. But there's something about examining ourselves and coming under the blood like that. And you remember I said a man laying down like that. Well, the left hand would fall on the communion table, table of showbread. If anybody ever has a problem with their heart, it's the left arm and the left hand that has pain, isn't it? It's interesting. But he said, if you will keep your first love and you'll keep the communion table, he said, you better do that or I'll remove your lampstand. That has to do with your status as a church. But also, I believe it has to do with like a fresh anointing the light of revelation in your church, the light of Holy Spirit revelation, the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. You know, if God ever removes your lampstand, there's going to be a thick darkness come in, isn't there? But we need to be a church, River of Life, where the Word of God is truly being preached and the power of the Holy Spirit is in operation. 39 books of the Old Testament. So that you have the, I just had like a brain thing when I was doing it, but you have these Old Testament books and then the New Testament tolling 66. Isn't that something? That God had him create something that has 66 books or 60, reference 66 books. So God has given his family, his word and his spirit. Isn't that precious? Jesus walks among the lampstands. He holds the seven stars in his hand. He's wanting us to keep that menorah burning bright, river of life. You know what that means? That means that every week we come together, the early church broke bread weekly. You know, we eat more than once a week. It's a reference to the communion table. That when we come together, we're, we're taking communion. You know what we're doing? We're consecrating our lives unto God. We're referencing the body and blood of the Lord, the bread of presence. And as we come under the blood, you know what I believe that that helps prepare us for? The mighty move of the Word of God coming and the power of the Holy Spirit. But we need a fresh anointing on this ministry. We need all seven branches of that menorah lit. We need the fullness of the Holy Spirit moving in our midst. And the true Word of God being preached. And I believe in the days that we're living before the Lord comes that God is going to anoint us like never before. And there's going to be, like John the Baptist, like Elijah, there's going to be a voice crying out in the wilderness, repent. Before the Lord comes again. John the Baptist was raised up before Jesus came to prepare his coming. And I believe the spirit of Elijah is coming upon us again as a, as a true believer's. And God's going to use us once again to cry out in the wilderness to repent. The coming of the Lord is near. And there's going to be like a prophetic sound. There's going to be an alarm going off. It's going to be so anointed that people are going to be convicted. 
They're going to be gripped with the fear of God. And there's going to be a great harvest. And it's preparing for the coming of the Lord. So hopefully this first section of the book of Revelation has been a blessing to you. But it is the revelation of Jesus Christ given to him by the Father and revealed unto us his bondservants. That which was, that which is in John's day, and that which is to come. The one who walks among the lampstands and holds the seven stars in his hand. So, Lord, we thank you so much tonight. We bless you. Thank you for the book of Revelation. Lord, thank you for uh, moving so powerfully here tonight. And, Lord, we just bless you. Let this be sealed in us tonight. We thank you for it and we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, just close down recordings. And we're going to pray for people that want prayer tonight. I believe God's going to move mightily. Is everything shut down? We're good. Thank you for doing that, by the way.